0: Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a wonderful couple hours planned for you. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest that I will bring on in just about 60 seconds. And then uh, Jeff Verdorn is going to be in the studio from uh, the second hour. So it's going to be a great day. In Philippians chapter one, verses nine and 10, it says, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I've been doing kind of a deep dive on uh, Jim Wallace's uh, website, Cold Case Christianity. I've been kind of hanging out there quite a bit lately, and I have to say that is one spectacular website to go for resources and to uh, grow in your uh, faith and to learn all kinds of ways in which to deal with the people that you talk to every day and some of the objections you're going to hear. Be equipped, be ready. In the next hour, we're going to have him live on the show, and we're also going to take your calls or your texts if you have questions about sharing your faith. And maybe you've heard something lately that you didn't know how to answer, and you're going to want to ask uh, Jim. We're open to taking your calls or your texts. The number is 877 2484. Again, eight seven seven 2484. We've got someone just standing by ready to take your call. Sierra's in the phone room. And also the text line is open. So let's get things started. After 60 seconds, we'll bring on Jay Warner-Wallace.
1: Listeners often tell us their radios are set to the Faith Radio FM signal in their city, and they rarely, if ever, change it. There is now a Faith Radio FM signal in all of the nine cities where we broadcast throughout the Upper Midwest and Hartford, Connecticut. Find the Faith Radio signal for your city. At MyFaithRadio.com, under the About tab, click on How to Listen, and you'll see our list of frequencies. Keep hope and encouragement locked in to Faith Radio on FM.
0: We're sharing each day together. What's not to like about Faith Radio? They're absolutely amazing, and it's 24-7, and I enjoy having the ability to turn on the radio at any time and find encouragement and some joy in a world that has many stressors to it. It's very encouraging.
1: I love Faith Radio because the great programming, just great listening for the day. Listen to the radio
0: station is just very
1: inspiring to me.
0: Thanks for growing with us on Faith Radio. All I wanna do is praise your name from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. You are my God, and all I wanna
1: do is praise your name. I praise your name with lift our voices and proclaim. You are my God, and all I wanna do is praise your
0: name. So glad you joined me. Happy Monday. I hope your weekend was good. And I uh, am so glad that we're gonna have this hour with Jay Warner Wallace. If you don't know uh, Jay Warner Wallace, please Get to know him. Go to his website, coldcasechristianity.com. He's authored many books, uh, all of which I think are in my library. And Cold Case Christianity, uh, God's Crime Scene Forensic Faith, Alive, and so the next generation will know. Um, one of my favorite guests, Jay Warner Wallace. Jim, how are you?
1: I'm doing good. Thanks for having me again. Oh, I appreciate it.
0: Are you kidding? How's, uh, how's little Bailey doing?
1: Doing well, but i got to tell you, I, we, today is our long run day, so I feel like I've got about you know, 30% of gas left in the tank here. So I have <laughs> got enough to be able to talk to you and not sound like an idiot. Oh, that's so we'll good.
0: See. No, that's good. So I've been been doing sort of a deep dive at your website lately. You, you're just This website is wonderful. It's got so much great resources, and I just want to encourage all the listeners to head over to Cold Case Christianity to learn so thank you for well, all I, the work so you've done. I so
1: appreciate yeah, you saying that because really, what it comes down to, we started this website years ago when I was a youth pastor, and all I was really trying to do was provide the resources that um, you know that we could uh, use with our our high schoolers. We were you right. know bringing up and raising up high school students, and so it just it grew, and so now we've got several thousand pages of content. But but we tried to organize it in a way that's not overwhelming. You know, just a place you can go every day and, and hopefully find something that will um, you know, help you to, to grow, take it, a step.
0: Yeah, it's all in really nice bite-sized chunks. You can, you can start something and then um, feel like you've really walked away with something. So it's really well laid out, and it's really, really good. Now, I also just appreciate your background as a homicide detective and the skill set that you apply to, uh, to dealing with apologetics and, and objections, and it's, it's all wonderful stuff. So I'm done gushing now.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think so much I always tell people who are interested in, you know, we feel this burden to, to share the gospel with people and this great commission burden that we've been given, not a burden is a joy, right? It's an opportunity. But we do do sense that, hey, we should, shouldn't we be doing something? You know, shouldn't we be talking to people about our faith? And I think what's happened is in this generation, especially amongst young people, that is going to include um, a, a conversation about the reasons why we believe the things we believe because this generation is bombarded with people who who argue they can give you a good you know scientific reason behind every claim they make and we have to be in a position where we can help young people to see that that the Christian faith is reasonable so i do think in the end it's going to require us to become pretty decent um case makers and and so for me yeah that's what i do for a living i get to make cases but but it turns out that my weird you know little niche or my background my personal history does help me and so does yours i mean so does everyone who has we're all unique and in that sense we have the unique ability to actually reach people who are like us that that cannot be reached by other people so i people i i I teach this at biola where i I try to raise up other uh, christian casemakers just to say hey whatever it is that's unique about you that is the thing you're going to leverage to influence people for the kingdom, and that's what I hope people will do. Just whatever unique background they have, trust me, it qualifies. It's, it's exactly what you need to have in order to reach the community around you.
0: Mm-hmm. When it comes to sharing faith, doing evangelism, apologetics, if you ask someone if they were saved, the answer really should be yes or no, but it almost seems like it never is. So let me throw out a couple of common responses that I think I've heard myself over the years and just have you respond so, um, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> well, here's what it comes down to. We have to ask ourselves questions about Christian essentials. I mean, do you realize how many Christians have no idea what the Bible teaches on key issues? Uh, they, they couldn't even define what a Christian—I mean, people who, who claim the Christian label, when surveyed, are overwhelmingly unable to describe what Christianity teaches on key issues— like salvation. Like, but let me tell you this. We are in the one position. We have a unique claim to what it is that brings you in right right uh, position with God, right? I mean every other claim in the world is a what-you-must-do kind of claim. And, and we're the only claim out there that is, says you know, what has been done for you mm-hmm. – by God, that's a very unique position we're in, and most people aren't even able to articulate. Number one, they may not even know what all the other claims are, why all the other claims are in some way works-based, and why our claim is just the opposite, and why does that make a difference? So I, especially young people, we have to help our young people. This is why we spend so much time with young people ta- talking about t- theology and apologetics. I mean we you know we have to – and and we have to actually show them why this matters in their own life you know why this matters to, why should this why should this matter to young people especially young christians and and so i think we have to be able to have that conversation i mean it it's not something you do that just magically saves you it's when you realize that there's a there's an offer waiting there on the part of god to who's done something you cannot do for yourself because but look honestly you know and i know if you don't realize your need for a savior we don't go anywhere Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is us being, you know, trying to make sure that we uh, our young people understand their need for a savior to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh Jim a listener uh, Terry jumps in with how do you approach presenting the gospel to someone recently diagnosed with a terminal illness?
1: Okay, so so here's how what th- th- this is I get questions, Carrie, I get questions that are really related to this question, which seems to me is is embedded in the problem of evil. Right? How, how, what what do we do? Why is, this even, why is anybody mad? They're terminal. They've, been, they've been, they're now uh, been diagnosed as terminal cancer. But remember, our worldview is unique in that it describes life, not like I used to think of it as an atheist, as a line segment from birth to death, right? A point starts at birth, a line of 90 years or so, then you have a point. Death. Now, if I get terminal cancer at 60, there's a problem here, given my old worldview as an atheist that saw life as a line segment. But we as Christians believe that life is a ray that starts at death and at birth rather and then runs through that point called death but then continues infinitely in the same direction into eternity that's what rays do they start at a point they go through a point and they continue indefinitely and if that's the world we live in if that's the true meaning of life and by the way the gospel recognizes that as a matter of fact christianity offers that hope To those that think they are – it's about to end because they are going to pass to the second point, death, our view says, no, actually it's just going to continue through that point called death and how you get right with God, how you uh, spend eternity – Uh, with god is you have to solve a problem first this problem of sin and it turns out that god's already solved that for you so so that's where the gospel lies i think the gospel is the one hope that people who are dying of anything have look death doesn't matter how you die we're all going to die it's a hundred percent of the population is going to suffer death so at least temporal mortal death it turns out our worldview offers something beyond death so i would start by saying hey if what i'm about to offer you is true it's going to cure you from what you think you think you're going to die, but it turns out you're not going to you're not going to die the way you think you are. You have an eternal life with God, and I'm going to offer you something now that's going to secure that. It's better than the cure, because the cure for cancer is only going to get you to the end of your 90 years. The cure I'm about to offer you is going to get you eternity. That's a much better cure, and that's where I would start with the gospel.
0: I love it, beautifully presented. All right, Jim, let me take a little break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Let us uh, know what your questions are. He'll tackle anything, 877-933-2484. You can call and, and come on the program and talk, or you can just send a text. I'll ask the question on your behalf, 877-933-2484. And if you're super curious during the break, go to coldcasechristianity.com. You can check out Jim's website. We'll be right back. Guest on Dateline. Jay Warner Wallace uh, is called the Evidence Whisperer by Keith Morrison. He's a cold case homicide detective, retired from the uh, city of Los Angeles, and now has been the senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola. So when I say call and ask with any kind of questions, I mean it. So let us know what they are. 877 933 2484. Jim, question just came in. By the way, you're doing great for the tank being low too. <laughs> you're starting off great. I,
1: I knew I knew when I got out with that run this morning. I said, "Oh my gosh, do I have anything?" <laughs> D- don't don't dare eat lunch because if I do that, then I'll be completely spent. Right there right, you yeah.
0: go. Uh, so, uh, listener says, "I have a question." After Cain killed Abel, there was a mark placed on him to keep him from being uh, murdered by someone else. Who would the others have been? I, I think Adam and Eve had many children after the first two, but who existed at that time to kill Cain.
1: Boy, I say there's a lot of thought and a lot of been written about this, and so I think Christendom has historically been uh, separated into several groups that try to answer this question in different ways, right? Is this another child of Adam and mm-hmm. Eve that is just not – now, you might say, well, wait a minute, that can't be true because there's no other children mentioned by Adam and Eve at this point. But, but again, remember, when people write, they often will write not about the totality of everything that could be documented about an eyewitness account or about history, but just those uh, the, the, just the people that they think are having important things to say or important lessons to learn. So you may be focused on two of these kids when in fact there's a bunch more. Same way you might be focused on the statement of one angel at the tomb of Jesus when there are actually you know more than one angel there. Remember when you, wherever, wherever you have uh, uh, two angels you also have one. So you may be focused on one in one account when you actually have more. So the same principle applies here. We don't don't really know uh, precisely who the others are, but we do know uh, some people, for example, have posited that there's just more children that aren't being described at this point. Some people have posited that there are other hu- hominids, in other words, um, other humanoids that are out there that are not Adamic. They are not from the line of Adam and Eve. Um, so we just don't know. I don't think I, I think I probably would incline myself more toward the first than the second idea. Uh, but remember, uh, either one of those two two things is equally reasonable from the text. The text doesn't preclude either one of those two things. So I I try not to divide over the non-essentials. And by the way, are you like me? I'm going to have a lot of questions for God when I finally get in front of God. And and we often ask in jury selection, are you the kind of person who can render a verdict even though you may have uh, open questions? And if you said to us, well, no, I, I, can't, I can't do that, I have to have every question answered, we're just not going to impanel you because we know there will be significant open questions we will not be able to answer. And so if you're the kind of person who can't render a verdict that way, then we're going to say, okay, I'm so sorry, you just can't be part of the, ver- the jury. Look, we ask people to render verdicts, and it happens every day even though you have questions that haven't yet been answered by the prosecutor or the defense attorney. The same thing is true here. You're going to have. I have open questions. I have open questions about the age of the Earth, about Genesis one, about which of these two divided views we have. There's so many theories about Genesis one. It's crazy. There are so many theories about eschatology. Well, I think those will be answered for us by our own experience. But my point is, um, I have questions for God. But none of these questions are about essentials. They're about non-essentials. Things that are interesting. But uh, in the end would not separate, if I disagree with a a Christian brother on this, it it doesn't exclude him or myself from being part of the family of God, just because we might land this differently.
0: Mm -hmm. So another question just came in, Jim. Uh, This is probably an entrance ramp kind of question. How do you share the gospel with a highly educated African-American who struggles with the idea of slavery in the Bible?
1: Well, make sure we have the same definitions, and I always start with definitions. So if if you said, I've got a question about X in the Bible, well, then I want to know exactly what you mean by X. What definition do you hold? Because I think most of the time when people talk about slavery, they see it through the context of our own experience as a country. And they are talking about New World slavery that we actually participated in in our country's early history. They don't see it as the slavery that's described on the pages of Scripture, which is ancient, ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, slavery. That's, that, that slavery in the ancient world was very different. Let me explain why. For a number of reasons. Number one, the way you entered slavery – was it, people who entered slavery in the New World were entering into it, un, you know, involuntarily. They were they were kidnapped into it. Uh, often, the vast majority of people who in, entered into indentured servitude in the ancient world into, entered into it voluntarily because they were either paying off a debt or paying off a crime. And so because we didn't have the kinds of financial institutions and didn't have the kinds of penal institutions to hold penitentiaries, to hold people, uh, we, this is often what, was, uh, what would happen. People would enter into servitude relationships with people who, with whom they were indebted. Also the way out was very, very different. Um, there was always a plan. The way you were treated while you were in is very different. The, the, the Hebrew law had a, a strict set of regulations for how slaves would be treated, not like property, but like people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's many ways that indentured servitude, as it's described using the word we use, and that's, that's our choice to, to translate that Greek or Hebrew word into slavery. The problem is that it, it brings to mind New World slavery and not the ancient form of indentured servitude. That So I've written a lot about this on our website. Just type in the word slavery up in the uh, search bar, and you'll see I've actually given you an example throughout all of the Old and New Testament describing what uh, slavery was in the ancient world compared to what it is today, at least how we think of it today, as that new world form of slavery. Mm -hmm.
0: Jim, what did the early Christians believe about hell?
1: Okay, let's go back for a second. Let me say one more thing about slavery. Um, When we talk about slavery, uh, in in, in terms of how different it was, remember, sometimes you think, well, gosh, there were Christians who uh, would take the words of Scripture— and use those words to advance their cause as slave owners. And in fact, that is true. I mean, that is very true. Uh, This does not mean that it's what uh, what the Bible teaches, though, because this is not unusual. You could take the words of Scripture and twist them to almost advance any cause you want to advance. Interestingly, the abolitionist movement that ended slavery – was on the back of the words of Scripture. The people who did this, Wilberforce, others, were Bible-believing Christians who cited Christianity, who cited the text to end slavery, so i just I just want to throw that out because sometimes people will say um, that you know it, the problem is that the words from scripture actually support the case for slavery, but of course again it 's people who are twisting the definition of slavery as we just discussed, and remember that the abolition movement was in fact uh, driven by christians who who were reading the text and using it as their text to end slavery now let 's go back um, and, and just talk about your second question, which is what early Christians believe about hell. Look, there's, there's a lot – there's a, a breadth of ideas, theological concepts related to hell that Christians have also held historically. Um, and so I happen to hold the view, which is called the traditional view, that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. Okay, But there are people who, who disagree with that view, and they will make a case for their disagreement from the, uh, the Scripture itself. So, for example, I've got many people I know who are in the movement that is an annihilationist movement. The idea that souls are simply annihilated at the final judgment and do not exist eternally consciously in hell—they are annihilated. Okay, they make a case, by the way, for that from scripture, and and I think that that's not. I don't see this as an essential. Uh, the idea that, that hell exists or what happens in the afterlife for those who do not accept God—are they destroyed? Are they aware of their uh, separation eternally in a conscious way? I think I happen to fall on the the view that they hold – they are actually separated and and are aware of their separation eternally in a conscious way, this idea of eternal conscious torment. And so sometimes you can look at the, 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 the work of early believers. Not to say that, that this is definitive, because I don't think it is. I mean, the Church Fathers disagreed about a thousand different things. So, so I think you just take it for what it is. I'm just going to offer it. I mean, I'm reading through the early Church Fathers from either early texts, like the Episcopal, Epistle of Barnabas, or from early thinkers like the student of John, uh, the uh, Apostle John um, uh, Ignatius, for example, or the student of Paul named Clement of Rome. Uh, you can read from this different other uh, polycarp. There's a, a document called the, martyrdom of polycarp, whether it's accurate or not. Uh, Tatian has written about this, another early uh, a finger on it. Uh, so you could go through all of these. And I think, uh, by and large, these early church leaders did at least interpret from Scripture that hell was a place of eternal conscious torment. Now, again... This is the kind of thing that I think we can, we can agree to disagree on if that's – because I, I see both cases, and I see them being very good. Both cases for eternal conscious torment or from, for annihilationism I think are pretty decent. I fall on the eternal conscious torment side. But again, this is a good example of one of those questions that I have – well, we won't have that question, of course, because when we get to this point, we'll know what the, what the answer is. But I have many questions about what, how to read and how to infer from the Scripture – but the fact that I have a question in this area that I consider to be a non-essential, and by the way, it's, it's a non-essential in very early creed of Christianity, I think it allows us to, to disagree, and agree to disagree, and mm-hmm. I do that in a way that is, is polite, and the same way you would disagree with um, uh, a, a family member uh, at Thanksgiving. Right. Uh, you're not going to end the family relationship and make a scene at Thanksgiving just because you disagree on this yeah. and so I think that's how we have the same approach with the tank
0: Alright uh, Jim, I'm going to take a break uh, while you drop and give me 50 push-ups i got to keep you nice and fresh That's right All right, So uh, we'll take a break when we come back Lots more time for questions 877-933-2484 You can call and come on the show live or you can send a text and I'll ask Jim your question Again, 877-933-2484 Be right back is my guest. Let me know what your questions are. Call or text 877-933-2484. So, Jim, let me ask you this: A lot of people go through um, going through hardships right now. It's it seems like it's a pretty universal idea, and I know God can use hardships. Um, maybe a word or two of encouragement for people who are in a hardship.
1: Yeah, it's, it's um, I, I most of my cases involve people who um, feel like this just, just can make no sense of of why God would allow them to go through uh, what he's allowed them to go through. And so I think this is where uh, the, this notion that we, um, every hardship, every problem we see in life, we almost always measure in terms of what we think is the, the totality of our life. So for example, if you if you you know went through a hardship the first year of your life because you were a, a baby who who was you know being treated for an illness and maybe you had to go through a surgery by the time you're five if you if you got through that surgery in the first year, now you've had four years where you're healthy um uh, you you don't even remember what that first year looked like, and this is why the Christian worldview makes a difference like we were talking about earlier, why eternity changes everything. Um, if you think about that for a second, if we are eternal creatures. You know, a thousand years into eternity, the first 90 years you spent here on earth won't be quite as, as significant as they feel like they are right now. A million years into eternity, that first 90 years, years—if even if the entire 90 years was difficult, will have to be measured in light of eternity. Uh, and that is the promise of Christianity. Not only that, but that the, the Savior who gives you eternity is uniquely um, experienced in hardship himself. You know, this is what... We believe in a God who's willing to endure hardship for eternity, and and He's asking us to do something similar, uh, to endure hardship with the promise of eternity that was paid for already by His work on the cross. Now, I don't ask people to do that just blindly, just trust. You know, just no. I'm saying that. Look, there's good reason to believe that Christianity is true. And if Christianity is true, there's good reason to believe that we are not temporal people, beings that just die at the end of our lives. We actually live on an eternity with God. There are good reasons to believe that is true. And if that's true, eternity changes everything. It even changes the degree to which we suffer, how we suffer. Because you know, if you knew you had to go through hardship, but it all ends on December 15th, and then you're going to have 10 great years that follow after that, you would push through to December 15th. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of doing the same thing here. We are pushing through because we know eternity waits for us. I love it.
0: So, Jim, how are we supposed to look at at artifacts, uh, whether they're authentic or a hoax When I, a caller jumped in with, um, do you have any research on the Shroud of Turin being Jesus? So I was just thinking about artifacts in general and things we hear about and read about. And, you know, what are authentic and what are not?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting you would ask that question. Several years ago, I was asked to pitch a series uh, for a cable network that uh, at... At Christmas, I'm sorry, Easter time would always have some kind of Jesus content, right? Something mm-hmm. in the Jesus space. They would say, "And they, do you have anything?" And I said, "Well, yeah, we could talk about, the, you know, the case for Christian." And so I showed them our, my book, Cold Case Christianity, and said, "Here's what I've looked at. I'm a cold case detective, and I'm in a meeting in Hollywood with a bunch of executives in this network." And they basically said, "Well, okay sounds interesting. Where do you fall?" Because every year at Easter time, this network would do a show on Christian relics. And this show would be it was the most popular show that this network would would run. It was their annual show on Christian relics, and they would go you know from place to place where allegedly they've got the thorns of the of the you know the, the crown of thorns. They've got you know someone's got a nail from the cross you know in some ancient church, and the, you know all these different churches would hold on to bits and pieces that they said were authentic relics from something that had to do with Jesus. And this show every year would simply go from church to church to church across um, you know, the, uh, the area around where Jesus did his ministry, uh, from basically from, from Jerusalem to Rome, all these churches that had relics. And they would systematically show how each one of them is not really uh, related to Jesus. Now, when I asked, they asked me, well, where do you fall on your investigation? I tell them, well, I'm a Christian. I think it's true. I'm telling you, the conversation was over. No, it went another 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. but I knew it was already over, because what they really wanted was a show that demonstrates Christianity isn't true. Now, sadly, the the early churches uh, became points of pilgrimage if they would just have a relic. And it is true that many of them would fabricate a relic, because it would draw people to their church as part of a pilgrimage to see, you know, the crown of thorns, or Mm -hmm. to see... So, I'm always skeptical of relics for that reason, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that there isn't a set of genuine relics out there from the life of Jesus. There may be. But unfortunately, because this was a motivation that existed for a lot of churches, I'm pretty skeptical when it comes uh, down to whether or not these things are authentic. And I am. Now, I've got friends. I can tell you Gary Habermas is a scholar at Liberty, and he has done a lot of work on the um, Shroud of Turin. And I know that Gary actually believes that the Shroud of Turin is uh, probably legitimate. And so just look, look him up, Gary Habermas, at, and he's done a great job of looking at that. I Myself, I'm still very skeptical about the Shroud um, for a number of reasons that are pretty well documented. It's gone through a number of tests. It doesn't always pass these tests, and then another test will come along, and somebody will say, well, here's why it didn't pass the test. So for me, I am not as convinced about the Shroud of Turin as some of my associates are. Um, but, but, again, part of it is because there's this rich history of churches that would fabricate relics in order to draw attention to their to their, their church. So so I'm just not – I'm rather neutral on the shroud. Yeah. But at the same time, I may be completely – I have not honestly given it enough attention. And people always say, well, well Jim, when are you going to investigate that? Yeah, I mean, that's a really big investigation. And I think you need access to the shroud in order to do it, do it any justice. So that's why I haven't really – you know, moved in that direction yet. Maybe yeah. someday.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the difference between believing the Gospels and trusting the Gospel?
1: Well, it's a, the difference between belief that and belief in, right? You can believe that something is true, yet not Put your trust in it because you may not want to or you may not like it or you may have any number. Remember, there's a lot of things that stand between evidence and inferences. You can should be shown evidence. Two people can be shown the same evidence and come to two different inferences, two different conclusions. Because in addition to the evidence, there's also your desires and your wants and your personal histories and all these other things that weigh into your decision-making that it really are, can twist the way you, you consider evidence. So I always say it this way. Uh, you could look at all the evidence for Christianity, all the evidence for Jesus, just read through the Gospels, looking at the evidence related to Jesus. I think if you're open-minded and you're fair in that investigation, you will see that the Gospels are, reli- are reliable. They are telling you the truth about Jesus Jesus of Nazareth. You will end up with belief that the Gospels are true. But this does not make you a Christian. This just gives you confidence that the Gospels are telling you something true. Once you read through the New Testament to see what it says about you and your personal need for a Savior, and once you're in a position where you go, yeah, you know, that's actually true, that it is describing me accurately, then you will move from – you'll realize – you can connect the two dots. You need a Savior, and the Gospels are telling you something true about the Savior, so now you're in a position to move from belief that it is true to trusting in it for your salvation. That's an entirely different step. And that's the difference between believe that and believe in.
0: Yeah, Jimmy gave a great illustration with the bulletproof vest.
1: Yeah, my my goal here is just I I used to work a lot of officer-involved shootings. And I had a case where a guy was confronted by a suspect who pulled the gun on him. And the officer was standing, you know, just a few feet away from the gun pointed at his chest and realized that he didn't even have his hand on on the, uh, you know, on his uh, gun belt. I mean, on his – he was caught – Empty handed. And so he didn't have time to pull his gun out. He realized he was facing, ultimately facing a shot fired. And he decided in that moment, because he knew that his bulletproof vest could stop bullets because he'd seen it do it in the range, he just decided to trust the bulletproof vest to stop the first couple of rounds to give him time to return fire. And that is the moment he moved from belief that the vest can stop bullets to trusting in the vest to do what he believed it could do. But by the way, we are he would never have done that if there wasn't if he hadn't seen evidentially that the vest could do its job. And if you think young people are going to put their trust confidently in a Christian worldview that they have never seen, uh tested, have never been they don't know that it can stop bullets evidentially. Well, that's what we have to be able to help them to see, that the Christian worldview actually can respond to objections, that it is evidentially true that it can survive the harshest criticism, the harshest skepticism. And then once young people see that it can stop the bullet, they're going to trust in it to do what it says it can do.
0: Mm-hmm. I find it interesting, Jim, when people talk about science and they you know, talk about a scientist, and, and it... It always seems that they think that because you're saying science, it's infallible. I don't know where that comes from. But then when they say, you know, Christianity is anti-science, how do you respond to that?
1: Well, okay, this is a couple of things here. Uh, the idea that the Christianity is anti-science really is—that's it uh, that's a lot you can say about this. Uh, we aren't anti-science so much as we are anti—I would call it scientism—in the sense that if what we mean by science is the belief that only truth that you can tr- you can trust, the only uh, truth that's worth examining, that the only truth um, that is um, uh, uh, verifiable in some way is the kind of truth you can discover with science, well then yes, we are against that notion. In other words, if you think the only thing you can do, the only way you can know truth, is through some empirical scientific process, well we would say that's not true. We, we would hold... Short of saying that, right? Because we know there are a number of things that you can't even discover with science, right, The science has nothing to say about, for example, logical facts or mathematical truths. These all precede scientific investigations. Science can't tell you anything about those. Those are the things you have to have in place first before you... Metaphysical truths, like um, um, these are the things that determine whether or not the the world around us is even real. These are truths about the nature of reality. These cannot be uh, known through science. Moral and ethical truths... These are the the ideas and concepts that set boundaries, right, for our behavior. Those things cannot – aesthetic truths like determining what's beautiful, what's ugly, even historical truths cannot be determined purely through science. There's a ton of stuff that science is absolutely unable to tell us, and it turns out these are probably some of the most important truths we will ever know, and they aren't even inside a category that science could test. So we would say, look, Science can tell us a ton of really important stuff, but it can't tell us all important stuff. So since that's the case, we have to at least you know, realize – by the way, what is Christianity? It's an historical claim about a resurrection and a person named Jesus of Nazareth. So, what exactly do you think you're going to be able to do with science that's going to help you with that? Mm-hmm. And so, in the end, I think we would say, no, we do we we do think that science is important. We just don't think it's the only way you could know something. That is not science. That's scientism. That's a very different kind of uh, view, and we would reject that. By the way, our history as Christians is filled with really good, accomplished scientists. Even there are even current. Scientists like Francis Collins and Michael Behe that are believers, they're Christ followers. So it's not as though scientists, uh, by by your very nature, once you ad- adopt a view that's scientific, you have to reject Christianity. That is not true. That has not been true historically, and it's not true today.
0: Mm-hmm. Jim, there's a listener that has asked about her um, believing in Christ as Savior once um, in her life. But her feelings or ability to know that, that salvation, that, that truth, has kind of dissipated and has faded. So she said, can you give um, her some advice to safeguard from letting her emotions drive her faith and her life with Christ?
1: No, that's, that she just said it. I mean, you, you just said it. It's, it's that we have to be careful Remember, the heart is deceitful, right? You you can't it, emotivism is a is a a, um, a way that people uh, think they can know truth. Uh, it's called emotivism, the idea that your emotions will tell your emotions can tell you a lot, and they can be trusted for many things, but your emotions really have strong limits in what they can do, and and you know this because um, there are times when um, there are times when your emotions really. Um, Don't, don't, don't serve you well. Uh, and you know that to be the case, right? You you would never, for example, suggest to your kids that they just follow their emotions into any relationship. You would say no as a point at which you have to step back because even you, probably if you're married, there are days when emotionally um, you're frustrated or you're if you allow your emotion to, to to determine how you behave with your spouse on a daily basis, that's going to be a wild kind of uh, hurricane of a relationship, right? There are times when we have to trust in certain truths that are rational to get – to have the best possible relationship we can have. What I think we've done as a church is we have said largely that personal testimony – when people – like you see in the first century, you're mm-hmm. right, the apostles testified in the book of Acts. They did not testify about their emotional responses and experiences, though. We've kind of made that what it is. Can you tell me what's your experience? What's your experience with God? Can you share your personal testimony? The apostles testify, but not with their personal testimony, unless what you mean is the fact that they personally saw the resurrected Christ. That's direct evidence, eyewitness accounts. Not about my experience, not about what God's done for me, not about how I feel about God. No, I saw the risen Christ. I'm an eyewitness. Now, think about that. That's very different. When people ask me to give me their te- my testimony, I usually say, you know what, I- my testimony is not important. My experience is not important, and either is yours. My emotional response today is not important, and either is—what's important is, is Christianity true? Mm -hmm. That's what the disciples were doing in the first century. They were making a case, evidentially, for why Christianity was true, not what can it do for me today. That'll change on a daily basis. You may not even feel good about it. There are days when I don't feel—it's not always easy to be a Christian— so, if I trust my emotions on a day to day basis, I'm not going to get very far. Now, I realize that an answer is probably not all that helpful, but here's what I would suggest. Once you know why something is true, you can return to it in tough times. Well said. Because my my, my boys will tell you that there have been times when they were like, eh, I'm not having, I'm not, I'm not, but they always knew it was true. Mm-hmm. And so they always end up coming back to it because what are you going to do? It's true. I mean, I like it today. I mean, when I do my own thing today. But in the end, they always knew it was true. And so they had to come back to it.
0: Yeah. Jim, let me take one more quick break. Jay Werner Wallace is my guest. Let me know what your question is. We have time for a few more. 877-933-2484. Be back in 90 seconds. great having jay warner wallace on the show we still have him for 10 more minutes so let's get your questions in 877-933-2484 you know jim when you i know you you've got a great deep deep love and passion for sharing uh your faith but is there times when you just get weary from answering questions all the time
1: not, um, not mine, of course, but. Yeah, of course not. Uh, you know, a lot I do. I do get It's not that I get tired of answering questions. I just have learned how to. Um, this may sound harsh, but I learned how to select the right jury, right? Mm-hmm. Because you will get weary and frustrated if in the end. Um, you cannot uh, make any progress with somebody and then sometimes you're not making any progress not because you don't have a good answer or not because you're not articulating it well you don't have a good ant you don't have any progress because that person you didn't select them well to begin with there are certain jurors i would never put on a jury because they are too biased to start with they don't really want it to be true they don't they – don't, so there's a, there's a range of jurors that I select from. I call them ones to fours. Ones are people who are so far in the pocket of the prosecutors that the defense attorney will never let that one on the jury. Fours are people who are so deep in the pocket of the, the defense attorneys that a prosecutor would never impanel that person. We are putting twos and threes, people who are on one side or the other but are open-minded enough to allow the truth to prevail. That's what I'm looking for in anyone I talk to. Mm-hmm. So I can, I, I my sensors are always up. If you're a one or a four, if you're a, uh, I mean, especially if you're a four and you're an anti-theist, and you've got people probably in your life who are like this, they're just looking for an excuse to tell you why you're wrong, looking for an excuse to kind of, you know, looking they're basically a hammer looking for a nail. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, um, if I know that's the person going in, I can figure that out pretty quickly. Well, then I have a different strategy for someone like that. That's somebody who I'm going to model Christ for. Somebody who I am going to be praying. for that God will move them from position 5 into position 4. Four, because until you move that person into position four, forget about it. You're, you're not you're not going to have any progress. You're not going anywhere. So, so that's – and that's the key is that you will get frustrated if you don't do a good job with jury selection. Now, I do want to see fours come to faith, but I know that that's something that God has to do first is to soften the heart. We are only capable of communicating the gospel to the people that God has first called, has first drawn. And so I'm looking for the people that God has drawn. And then if you do that, you will not wear out quickly because you'll always probably have a certain degree of success.
0: Mm -hmm. Jim, is media consumption today, um, is it threatening the the future of having people have more conversation about Christ and Christianity?
1: Oh, yeah, it definitely is. I think... um, it's, it's, it's really tough to understand exactly where we're headed with this technology and how the technology will affect, affect every um, aspect of culture right? because it's kind of hard to predict that. But, but you can definitely see that when you are in an on-demand world in which you can consume the media or you can shape your daily experience of media on demand, all this does is increase your sense of control your sense of of I am in charge of my own life and the way I watch media, the way I even consume news. I can find news sources that echo what I already believe. I can find talk shows that echo what I already believe and podcasts that echo what I already believe. I can choose – I can actually isolate myself within any niche of any worldview and just close down any opportunity from anyone else outside that niche to ever communicate anything to me. Because I don't have to listen to it. i mean, I got too many choices. I can listen to people I want to listen to. So that's why it's going to be harder, I think, to break into certain um, uh, pockets. That, and it's, you think, well, gosh, you know, you used to think, well, there are places in the world that are so remote. There are little niches of media consumption that are so remote that you're not going to be able to – that's a mission field for us, right? So, So I think especially with young people who don't even remember what it was like to have less choices – And have to watch on this. There used to be a thing on on a schedule. There used to be a TV guide. Remember a TV guide? You could actually buy that. And it would tell you what time your media uh, choices, the few that you had, were actually available to you. What a concept. I mean, nothing's like that anymore. The entire series for that season, you could binge watch it all at once. They're releasing the whole season at once, right, on Mm -hmm. Netflix? So it seems to me that that's the world we're going to have to deal with, is a world where, where people are able to kind of craft their own consumption, and they can easily craft consumption that does not include a Christian worldview. It's not like, you know, it's not like it'd be hard to avoid a Christian message in America. It, it hasn't been for a long time, but now especially, you could you could easily avoid a Christian message because you have so many choices, and they, some of them are pretty niche
0: Yeah, so if everybody's in their niche, Jim, how do we... Uh more intentionally engage with them?
1: Well, I think a lot of it is going to have to be interpersonal. Remember, truth claims are most influential when they are connected to relationships. And although those these media choices are all out there, you may feel like you have a relationship with that guy you watch or that gal you watch every you know night because you, you pull up that, that show you love. But reality is you've got a better relationship with someone with whom you have physical proximity. So it turns out it's going to – I think it makes it more important for those of us who believe in, in not friendship evangelism, but the idea that we have a personal responsibility to share Christ with the people that we know – we do because it's not as though there's some ministry out there that can penetrate these niches. We happen to actually be in some of those niches with those people. Mm-hmm. There are kids, there are neighbors, our coworkers. So I think we have an opportunity to actually talk to the people who are otherwise able to um, hide in their you know s- s- carefully crafted micro environment.
0: Yeah, you must have some a good news story coming out of all the work you've been doing with millennials lately.
1: Well, there's so many of just be Good. encouraged. I mean, we uh, sometimes the statistics can make it feel like everything is moving away from Christianity, and every young person has given up.
0: Right, that's not true. Not
1: true. No, not true. It's it's not as bad as as uh, you might think. And and we just had 2,700 students two days ago at Rethink uh, in Southern California. It's a, a Christian student apologetics conference. And we're doing four of these a year right now through wow. standard Reason at str.org. I mean, seriously, take a look at it. It's There's there's good reason to celebrate. I think young people want to know if it's true. And if we are simply willing to, to show them why it's true, good things are going to happen.
0: So appreciate you, Jim. I, I I just love having you on the program. Our, our listeners love you. So thank you for the work you do. And uh, Thanks, I'd love you, to brother. have you back on again as well.
1: You know I'll come on wherever you I want. Know, I, I know you it. will, Jim. Thanks. All right, talk uh, to you
0: soon. Yep, you bet. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. His website is coldcasechristianity.com, coldcasechristianity.com, just like a cold case detective. That's what he is. We will uh, take a little break, and then we'll be back for Hour 2. Uh, my friend and Bible mentor, Jeff Dorn is sitting outside the green room, and he's going to be coming in. We're going to be talking about the parables and also about a uh, special event coming up in November. You're not going to want to miss any of that. We'll take a short break. and we'll be back in just a minute.